Okay, so tonight, as we know, we'll con we're going to look at our responsibilities in regard to attending uh, wedding receptions. Now, first of all, I trust we're all agreed that to attend upon official proceedings of an unlawful minister at a wedding ceremony is to commit sin of occasional hearing, and so we won't have to get into that subject at all. I'm pretty good that everybody here is on the same page on that. I believe it's good to discuss our duties at wedding receptions for uh, a number of reasons. Uh, most importantly, I think we have to take uh, take care that we don't think that our scriptural duties are simply done uh, because we have um, not attended a wedding uh, ceremony for occasional hearing purposes. I fear, at least I've seen in some conversations that I've had, and this is certainly not in Edmonton, but so much more broadly speaking in the church, that we're too ready to think that once the actual wedding ceremony is over and the minister, in his uh, official capacity, uh, he steps out of the way, that uh, um, basically our duty's over. We can just proceed to celebrate a marriage without... Uh, uh, too much thought or uh, in other words once occasional hearings out of the picture we're relatively just free to celebrate a marriage as we pr as we please now this I believe is a, is a mistaken view or at best a short-sighted view of the subject uh, now right at the outset I want to make something absolutely 100% perfectly clear and, you know, if you don't remember anything else from this Bible study, remember this that I'm saying right now. I am not saying, and that's I'm not saying this, that we can't ever attend wedding receptions or celebrate a wedding where two non-covenanters have been married. All right. Never said it, never will. Okay, that's just never been the position held. So, um, I've never believed it. So that's just simply the case. So interpret everything through that grid. It's possible to go to a wedding reception of non-covenanters. What we're going to talk about tonight is what kind of questions do we want to consider before we go to such meetings. Now, I believe that we're all already uh, in a position where we're going to draw some lines in regard to reception attendance. So the question we're really looking at is not whether we could attend any and all wedding receptions. I doubt that anybody here really feels that. Uh, but instead the question is about which principle should we use so that we can be consistent about which wedding receptions we could or should attend. For example, what if, uh, what if the marriage parties are notoriously scandalous people? They're obstinately despising their parents, they're marrying directly against their parents' consent, uh, openly dishonoring them, or what about two excommunicated persons who openly despise the authority of the church and the excommunication that was sent down? Uh, would we go to a wedding reception if these people were involved? Would we draw some lines there and say, you know what, I just don't feel comfortable going to that. Uh, what about if these two wedding people were vocal and obstinate abortionists? Uh, so the, 
the you know the husband and the wife were very vocal in the abortion community, pro-abortion. Or what if they were convicted and unrepentant murderers? Uh, what if they were fornicators, prostitutes, openly pro- promoting uh, homosexuality or bisexuality without any sort of repentance? Uh, what if they're open thieves or high-handed liars in a very straightforward way? Would we go to uh, the wedding receptions when people are married uh, in that particular instance? Some might say, well, maybe in some cases, but generally not. Uh, these people are just too notorious, they're too out there with their sin. So, uh, I tend to think we would draw some lines there. Now, these, if you noticed, what I did is I ran down here the sins of the second table of the law. I just went fifth commandment, sixth commandment, seventh commandment, eighth commandment, and said, here, here's a whole bunch of second table sins where uh, we would say, you know what? If they go that far with these second table sins, I'm not going to go to their wedding for sure, and I'm not going to their wedding reception either. That's just too far out there for me. Now, uh, just let me ask the question generally, do you think that's a fair assessment of the group of covenanters that we are? Or would we go to these wedding receptions? I know I wouldn't. It's just too far for me, especially uh, some of these more heinous sins. Now, the point I want to make just at the outset here is that lest we imagine that sins against second table of the law are worse than the sins against the first table, uh, so that we remain consistent in honoring God, let's ask the same questions regarding the first table of the law. And let's ask, uh, what if we're invited to celebrate a wedding or come to receptions uh, to people that knowingly, and this is important, they, they're knowingly, notoriously, obstinately breaking the first four commandments. Do we look at that differently than the last, uh, the last six? How can we determine if you're doing it, um, like, what do you mean by knowingly? Because these people may have heard, um, you know, all the information given to them, but yet, well, I think that, you know, we have to make a judgment somewhere. Uh, it's a good question, for sure, because we're dealing with their external behavior. I mean, we can't read their heart. Now, that's not fair. But So we're dealing with their external behavior. Uh, we take a, take a case of a, uh, a civil government who is a lawful civil government. Are they allowed to make um, civil laws uh, against Sabbath breakers? civil laws against blasphemers, civil laws against the whole variety of first table commandments. Same question would be applied to them. How do they tell when to actually apply the law and find these people or imprison these people or banish these people from a land? How, how would the civil government, how would the civil magistrate tell? From their actions, exactly. If they're actually doing it, uh, there are sanctions to actually doing this. And so you, you work off of what they're actually doing and to what degree they're doing it. You know, uh, it's, uh, ignorance is uh, a partial excuse, uh, I grant. But, uh, you know, we're talking here about really notorious 
let's just say now, what, let's go through a list and see what if what if they're Satanists against the, the first commandment, open notorious Satanists, married at the first church of Satan and invite you to a wedding reception. Are we going to go? I think that's crossing the line so far over that we go, no, your external actions are pretty loud and clear. What if they're really vocal Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims? Like, let's just start with the leaders of the Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and Muslims. Would we be anxious to go in there? And, and I think many of us, at least, would say, you know what? I'm not going to that reception either. That is just too over the line on the first table. Um, what if they're really um, leaders of the Catholic Church, gross papists? Let's not talk about, you know, the ignorant papist that really doesn't know uh, what they're doing one way or the other, but the, the more knowing ones, the leaders, the cardinals, the whoever, uh, the big the big guys. Uh, I think that they're to be held to a higher standard for sure, and I think we would tend not to go to wedding receptions where these guys are involved. Well, right. Or yeah. Well, not. I mean, we'd say it, it's a cult, so it, it's not uh, not great difference. What's the difference between a Satanist and a heathen? It's the same thing. It's just a, a false religion, and yet all the only point I'm making there is simply that whether it's uh, against the first table, what if they were really open idolaters, like um, sacrificing their children to Moloch kind of idolaters, uh, kind of people, really obstinate. Well, I think a, a godly civil government would certainly be imprisoning these people at least if they kept doing it over and over and wouldn't repent. And it probably wouldn't even have to worry about going to the wedding reception unless they were getting married in prison. Because they wouldn't need many of them if they, uh, let's say, open blasphemers. Open blasphemers won't get married because they'll be killed by a lawful civil government. And so we wouldn't even enter that problem. But some of these sins are so serious, I, I think Satanists would too. Uh, in a godly civil government, they'd be executed if they're practicing open Satanism and they didn't stop it. Uh, probably for Muslims, uh, at least be banished. Things like that. So, um, you know, again, there's a judgment call to be made uh, there, but whether they're papist, I would even say for a knowing, obstinate Arminian. Now, I'm not talking about the garden variety Arminian that doesn't really know what they believe, but how about an Arminian that talked to a Calvinist for, say, 10 years and can recite the whole Calvinist doctrine backwards, forwards, upside down, and backwards, and they know it. And then they come out to you and say, I absolutely hate the Calvinist doctrine. How about that guy? There's no question. He's a knowing Arminian. We would say, no, that's different than somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about. So they're, all I'm trying to point out here is that by their behavior and by their knowledge, there's certain first table principles that clearly cross our lines too. I'm saying, let's not be too harsh here. But nevertheless, understand, we've got some lines that 
I think all of us would say, okay, clearly that line's been crossed, at least on a personal level. And as I said right off the top, I'm not saying to anybody, you can't go to these wedding receptions. So really what I'm saying is, you're going to have to make judgments on a personal level. This is what it comes down to. But I tend to think, on a personal level, that there's quite a few lines on the first table that would bother us quite a bit as well. It, and I'd like people just to remember that the first table is about sins against God. We ought not to raise up uh, sins against man as being more offensive than sins against God. I think it should be the other way around. And I tend to think, because the sins against men, the second table is so external or more external that we tend to do that. So just keep both tables in mind. I mean, uh, just take, for example, uh, um, Sabbath breaking. Okay. How much knowledge does it take to learn not to break the Sabbath? How much studying does it take? Is it something that should take the average normal person 15 years to learn? 20 years of discussion to learn not to break the Sabbath? I can't see it, honestly. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Thus says the Lord. Okay, what part of that is up for interpretation? What part of that's confusing? I don't see it. So if a person's an open Sabbath breaker, uh, after you go and talk to them about it, I suppose the only place they'd argue is to say, well, I don't think the Ten Commandments apply to us today. So we talked to them about that for a while. Again, everybody make their personal decision and, and try to be gracious, but right next, and that's what I want to talk about next, is let's be careful not to be over-gracious, too. That's a sin as well. And so let's move on to the, uh, to the next part of this. That's just kind of a little mini introduction. Uh, the, the first point that I want to make on this topic uh, in a word is balance. We want to have balance when we're thinking and, and talking about this. Scripture teaches us in Romans 12, verse 8, uh, if it, be, it says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And it also teaches us in Jude 1, verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write on you, unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So, in short, we have to call that which is evil, evil. We have to call that which is good, good. We have to make our testimony clear to those around us and earnestly contend for the faith. But this has to be balanced with live at peace with all men. Be have wisdom. Be prudent. Okay, and this, so let's keep both sides of this in mind. Now, it's not loving to offend God. Uh, it's not loving to offend brethren just for the sake of not offending some family member or friend. And James, in the book of James, he teaches that truth always has to come first before peace. And if there's any question about it, it just straight out says it, James 3.17. But the wisdom that's from above, first, pure. Truth first, purity first, then peaceable. We have our harmony with others. We have our peace with others. 
in the purity, in the truth, not the other way around. So if there's a priority between truth and peace, truth comes first. God says that's the wisdom that comes from above. Leviticus 19.17 says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon them. So when you see your uh, your neighbor's um, sinning serious sins, if you just totally pass it by, this is called hating your brother. This is not called gentleness. This is not called love. This is called hatred by God. And that's not good. Now, having said that, we have to keep in mind that when we're testifying for Christ in his truth, uh, we've got to be careful that we're not conducting ourselves in an un, uh, unnecessarily offensive way. Um, uh, Geneva Bible Comments by Bayes are interesting here and uh, on, on the comment, and not suffer sin upon him, of Leviticus 19. Uh, he says, if thou see him sin or know him to be addicted to anything by which the safety of the soul is endangered, thou shalt mildly and affectionately reprove him, and by no means permit him to go on without counsel and advice in a way that is leading him to perdition. In a multitude of cases, timely reproof has been the means of saving the soul. Speak to him privately, if possible. If not, write to him in such a way that himself alone shall see it. So obviously he's saying be mild, be affectionate here. When we're making our testimony for the truth, we're avoiding two extremes. First, uh, I'll point out the too tolerant side. We have to avoid pleasing men in their corruptions. Giving them the, the impression, giving them the appearance that we approve of their corruptions or we're celebrating their corruptions. We don't want to give anybody that idea. This can be done by being too afraid of any sort of disagreement, any sort of confrontation with others. And so by a misplaced emphasis on gentleness, by too much noticing the good and overlooking the evil, we can sinfully encourage others in their corruption. We can sinfully strengthen them in their sin. Uh, we can overdo it by being too gentle. And that's not healthy for the soul of another person. Now, on the other extreme, we can err and sin just as easily, and we can sin just as seriously against our neighbor uh, when we're pointing out the sins of others if our admonitions to them are poorly timed. Uh, if they're not humble, if we're grossly blunt with people right from the beginning, if we come at people with a holier-than-thou or I'm-better-than-you-are kind of approach, uh, we'll unnecessarily drive people away from us, uh, we'll help to close their ears to the truth, and this is to drive them away for all the wrong reasons. If people are going to reject our testimony about the truth that we're making, uh, let's make sure that what they're really not rejecting is us and our approach, uh, rather than rejecting the truth. In short, make your testimony clear. Be bold in the truth. Don't be afraid to speak the truth. 
so that those that you love will be given an opportunity to hear the truth, but be careful how you do it, be careful when you do it, be careful where you do it, and be balanced in your approach to your fellow man. And ultimately, if that's all too much to remember, it's so easily summed up in this one thing. Do unto others as you would have others to do unto you. Real simple. Uh, So many ethical questions can be resolved that way if we just remember to ask ourselves that question. So let's ask ourselves that question. If if you were uh, in a in a place where you're sinning by being part of a schismatic church, if you're being married by a schismatic minister, if you were participating in idolatrous worship at your wedding, uh, what would you want? How would you want it handled by somebody? Would you want somebody to... Uh, humbly and, and tenderly with good timing come up and tell you what was wrong because they were sincerely seeking the good of your soul? Is that what you'd want? Or would you rather that nobody tell you what was wrong because they were afraid they might upset you? Uh, I think the answer uh, is pretty obvious of what we ought to want. We, When we're doing something wrong, uh, we want people to ultimately tell us. Not tell it in a nasty way, but in a humble, affectionate, a tender way. And at least then we hear it, and we can think think it through and try to make the corrections. So, and this is what we don't want. We don't want people not coming up and telling us because they're afraid of confrontation, because they're afraid that somebody might get upset. If we handle things that way, how do we correct people? Some correction requires eventually some confrontation as difficult as that is. But if we have the right attitude towards it, it doesn't have to be as bad as we think. It's just a real humble approach to start with. You can always escalate the approach that you're taking. As they start pushing you away, you can become more blunt and more clear. But at the start, just really take it easy when when you're giving people our distinctives, and especially in an area like a reception a pretty important thing to anybody no matter who they are and so uh, you want to take it real slow but you want to get the truth out there too you want to let them know so uh, now that is actually the introduction now we'll move on to the more of the subject at hand <clears throat> he, uh, Hebrews 13 verse 4 says marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. That is, here's the explanation, let the institution of marriage be highly esteemed, highly honored. This is God's institution. It's designed by God himself to promote the welfare of mankind in general, for believers and for unbelievers, for Jews and for Gentiles, for Papists and for Protestants, even for Atheists and for Satanists. Marriage is honorable in all. Now, it was designed for God, or designed by God, not only for natural order, decency in society, but more importantly, I believe it was designed by God to typify Christ as being the head of his bride, which we learn in Ephesians the bride being the invisible church of the elect. 
Now, I would point out here that two believers who are upholding the faithful attainments of the faithful church do certainly fit the type of Christ as husband over his bride better than two Satanists who are getting married. But, nevertheless, even in the marriage of the most notorious and scandalous people, there is still some measure of the type of Christ in union with his bride. There's still some type there, even if it's only the barest kernel of type. And so if you ever hear you know, the talk of um, uh, just comparing the two, obviously two faithful people, uh, a faithful husband and a, and a faithful wife, uh, we'd say two covenanters, are going to picture Christ and his bride way better than two Satanists and all points in between. So we're only talking comparatively here. Now, let's look at our confession of faith for a minute. It says marriage uh, marriage is honorable in all. We're thinking through that. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith 24.2 Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with a holy seed, and for the preventing of uncleanness, the purposes of marriages. Section 3, it is lawful for, for all sorts of people to marry. There's no question. Marriage is for everyone. All sorts. It's lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent, which implies obviously age limits and uh, intellectual limits. Um, people that don't know what they're doing that can't give their consent, that's a problem. Now this next section is very interesting and uh, uh just as I read it, just we'll try to think it through. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. And therefore, such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry within infidels. And I'll just add, you know, I'll just put should not in front of each of these to make a little more space between them. Those who profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels should not marry with papists, should not marry with other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly, that would be equivalent to the true reform religion, be unequally yoked by marrying such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. So that's our confessional statement. That's our subordinate document. Now, this is a little side note, but I want everybody to give this a little bit of thought, because obviously that section has huge implications on our families and our children and marriages. I won't go into details of this portion of the larger catechism, but I want you to notice this chapter and really think about the implications. Notice that this is not simply saying that truly reformed Christians should not marry unbelievers. That's not what it's saying. It's including that, no doubt, but it goes beyond that in this section. They they call the unbelievers here infidels. Clearly it's saying, don't marry an unbeliever if you're a truly Reformed Christian. But, it also says, truly Reformed Christians should not marry papists. Is a papist a professing Christian? Is he an unfaithful professing Christian? So it's, a, it's equivalent to them saying, in a category of papists, 
truly reformed people should not marry professing Christians who are unfaithful. There is your catechism proof for, you know, who can we marry? Can we marry, uh, can our children marry OPC or PCA? And we say no. They aren't as unfaithful as papists, but they're still professing Christians who are unfaithful. So there's your catechism proof. It says, neither should, uh, neither should reformed Christians marry idolaters. It's an interesting, huge category, but who would we class? as idolaters. Well, certainly there's a bunch of heathen idolaters out there, but I think it's fair to say that there's a whole bunch of professing Christian idolaters too. If we include all the idolatry that goes along with their worship in most of these churches. And so again, they're out of the picture for us. Uh, who Who does this section mean when it says we shouldn't be unequally yoked with those who are notoriously wicked? Well, that's another word for excommunicated. The notoriously wicked are the excommunicated, the unrepentant excommunicated. So can our truly faithful, reformed people marry somebody who's excommunicated? No, not in that state. They're notoriously wicked. And obviously the last one, uh, um, the notoriously wicked, by the way, doesn't just include somebody who's been positively excommunicated. It could include, you know, the Satanists and all those other bad guys. And finally, the last one, those who are maintaining a damnable heresy. I think that's self-explanatory. I can't imagine a truly Reformed Christian running off and wanting to marry uh, a promoter of a damnable heresy. You know, somebody that says uh, there is no trinity. Uh, Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. Uh, something terrible like that. Uh, just hard to imagine that happening. So, just think through that chapter. I know that that's not really our question right now, is who can our children marry, or who could we marry? But, it's a chapter that gives us some categories to think through, and say exactly who did they mean when they popped all those things in there. And, I think it's important because uh, as we see, uh, marriage is its obviously an important thing, and it's also not the easiest thing to do when we're this small little group of covenanters. And so we want to be able to explain to our children why their, um, their options are so narrow, so that they understand, because they're going to have to suffer if they don't get married, if they want to get married. And we want to, want to know why, what's, what's right about it, what's wrong about it. Now, so that's just a little side thing, just so that you would take that portion of the confession and really break it apart in your mind and look through it. So let's go back to the main point here that marriage is honorable and all. Um, before I go any further, could somebody tell me what time it is? 740. 7.40. Uh, could somebody give me a, a notice when we... Because we've been going for, what, about 15 minutes or so. I, I don't want to turn this into like a uh, hour and a half thing. And so if somebody could tell me when about another half hour is up, and we'll just see how far we get. And if we need to break this into a second Bible study, you know, we'll do that. So let's move on to, uh, uh, that. again, on the point marriage is honorable in all. Uh, while it's true that marriage is honorable in the sense mentioned above, uh, 
that it's to be highly esteemed as the institution of God. We have to qualify, uh, qualify this by saying that marriage, as it's spoken of here, has to be interpreted and has to be defined by the scripture. It has to be defined by God, not by the imaginations of men or of civil governments. Okay, They don't get to tell us what marriage is. God tells us what marriage is. Marriage is honorable, but incestuous marriage is not marriage, even if the civil government says it is, even if other churches say it is. Homosexual marriages are not marriages, even though the civil government thinks so. Polygamous marriages are not marriages. Marriages of three-year-olds are not marriages. Uh, I heard once of uh, somebody in the southern states marrying their TV, literally, legally, and there was some weird reason for it. But that's not a marriage, obviously. Uh, William uh, Gouge, in his Domestical Duties, has a really interesting section on this, and he goes into a few other you know, uh, uh, broader categories that obviously you can't marry animals, as if that were needed to be said. But evidently, in our world... It does need to be said because I heard somebody married their dog recently uh, for some um, odd legal reason. Now, so the point being that none of these are marriages, even if the civil government claims that they are legal and just marriages, even if they give them inheritance rights, whatever they say, they're not marriages. Uh, <clears throat> other thing I would note, especially note, is that those who have been unlawfully divorced and are, and are therefore still married to their first spouse, and their first, they'll still marry to their first spouse in God's eyes, no matter what any government says or what any church says. If a man marries a woman, a woman marries a man, while they're still married to their first spouse, that marriage is not a marriage. And so marriage is honorable in all. This doesn't apply here because we're not even talking about marriage. In all cases where the marriage is null or void, that is not a marriage. We must not congratulate it. We must not celebrate it. We must not go to the receptions or anything. We nothing to do with them. We should condemn those null marriages. We condemn them as sinful and as destructive God's order for society. They just shouldn't exist. I know it might seem like an obvious point, but it needs some consideration. Think back to various wedding receptions you may have attended in the past and ask yourself, did you simply trust that the people officiating in these things had taken care of all this? Just show up at the reception and or in some cases the wedding, and just assume that surely the pastor must have asked about that. Surely somebody must have asked about those things. But how many churches out there uh, do you think, or groups out there for that matter, do you think have their marriage and divorce principles truly in agreement with Scripture? I know that when uh, Jim and Betty Jean Berg, I think you remember them or some will, they began asking around to see if their marriage was incestuous. You remember they were excommunicated for incest. They began asking around to various churches once they found out what we thought. And they found many churches, including the PCA. PCA elders were telling them, no problem, no incest for you. 
And so, of course, they're, they were happy with that and they just left us. But what if we were going to a wedding reception at this PCA church that thinks that that marriage is not incestuous? And so they let it go. Uh, we could be walking right into a null marriage not knowing it. And so I just want to point out that don't be too trusting of the officiating people uh, or just blindly think that, hey, they're taking care of this stuff. Uh, ask the questions. Go in and ask the pastors if you if you want to go to a reception. And, and ask them and say, has anybody checked whether this marriage was incestuous? Not by their principles, but by our principles. Right? Because their principles, in many cases, are just simply wrong and unscriptural. Ask, has anybody examined the couple's previous marriage history? You know, easy. You don't even have to ask. It's two young people their first marriage. But, but there's just so many divorces out there. And we're finding that in the church, too. When people join the church now, we actually ask people these questions. Uh, we ask them about in, incest. It's awkward, but we do it because of what's happened. We ask them about their divorce and marriage history because there are many, many of these situations that are coming our way. We should also ask has, uh, not only about their marriage and divorce history, uh, you know, make sure that we're not walking in and, and uh, congratulating a null marriage, but we should check and see if parental consent has been sought. And if not, why not? Because uh, you don't always have to have it. There are some exceptional cases. But generally speaking, um, it's good to know if it's been sought at all. And that might affect the way we look at any sort of celebration of this marriage. It seems to be a bit of a touchy point in history uh, as to whether um, uh, without parental consent they, the various faithful churches would consider these marriages null. Uh, some did, though. It, you know, especially if the parents were saying, we totally object to this marriage, and they had good reasons, and then the two young people ran off and did it anyway, the churches wouldn't recognize these marriages as marriage. Which is, uh, it's a hard question on that one. So, just to point out, uh, I won't go any further on that, except to say, celebrating a null marriage being at the wedding reception, congratulating it, is absolutely sinful. Just wrong. Uh, we shouldn't honor that which has no honor. We shouldn't approve of that which should be condemned. So, pretty straightforward stuff there. Next. <clears throat> I want to make a distinction, uh, one which I found helpful in, in, in thinking through this topic. And the distinction is this, that once we determine, through asking these kind of questions, that a, a, valid, a valid marriage has taken place, we, we have to distinguish a little further between that which is valid about the marriage and that which was unlawfully done, if something was unlawfully done, in the marriage, in the way it was done. Now, this distinction can be illustrated by using Scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.39 the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband be dead, uh, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. Now, but what if this, so there's a clear command, marry only in the Lord for the Christian. 
What if the woman, this Christian woman, we'll pick a woman in this case, uh, simply chooses to disobey God's command and goes and marries an atheist, uh, goes and marries a professed unbeliever, just openly despised. Is she really married to that man? If she goes and does that, even though God said only marry in the Lord? She goes through the ceremony, gets it done. Is she legally, civilly married to that man? You bet. That's a valid marriage. The only way to get out of that lawfully is by divorce. Okay, so it's valid. Is it lawful? Or did they go right in the face of God's commandment? God said marry only in the Lord, and they do exactly the opposite. On purpose. So here we have a distinction that we make, and we say, well, surely that's, that's a real marriage. But that was grossly unlawful for them to do that right against God's law, right against God's revealed will. And that's, here is, uh, here's why I want to make that basic distinction. It's the same distinction that we would uh, make for uh, uh, baptisms. It's the same distinction that we would make for ordinations. It's a very consistent type of thing. In a Roman Catholic baptism, uh, uh, or for any baptisms done by unfaithful ministers and unfaithful churches, do we recognize the baptism as real and valid? Or do when people come from the Roman Catholic Church or a Baptist church, do we rebaptize them? No. We say, no, they've already been baptized. It's been done. But do we also testify against the way that baptism was done? It was done by an unfaithful minister. It's done in an unfaithful way in many cases. Sure we do. So, here's baptisms as valid, but the way it was done, very unlawful. Now, if we take a Roman Catholic baptism, uh, if we accept a Roman Catholic baptism, does that mean we have to accept a Roman Catholic priest as a lawfully called minister in some sense? That he's been lawfully ordained in some sense or... Maybe I should say validly ordained. Yeah, we do. Because, you know, if you, for example, does the baptism, uh, if, if a woman comes and baptizes somebody, do we call that baptism? No. The Reformed Church has never said that's baptism. Or if a child comes and baptizes somebody. Or just a private dad comes and baptizes their children in the bathtub. Well, those things aren't recognized. But when a lawful minister baptizes somebody, that's valid. So if we recognize the Roman Catholic baptism, that means we have to recognize the Roman Catholic ministry, at least to some degree, enough to say that there's a ministry there and that they've been ordained. Now, we're not thrilled at all about the way they were ordained, and we're not thrilled at all about almost everything that they're teaching. But... Could we say that their ordination was valid? Yes, definitely. And if they came to the Covenanter Church, if they went back to Covenanter Seminary, and if they came to the Covenanter Truths and came up to be placed in one of our churches, we would not ordain them again. Just the same as baptism. We would ratify their ordination, but we would not ordain them again. You're only ordained once. So these, these distinctions are simply used to 
make distinctions so that we we divide things up properly. So this distinction between a valid marriage and a lawful marriage uh, is simply used to distinguish between what we approve of in the marriage and or what we approve of in the baptism or what we approve of in the ordination. I choose to call that valid or what we do not approve of in the marriage or baptism or ordination. And it helps us from calling evil good or calling good evil. So it's just a way to break these things apart. Now, it's an interesting question. Uh, would we congratulate and celebrate um, valid baptisms or valid ordinations done by unfaithful ministers and unfaithful churches uh, without at least some sort of testimony as to what part we approve of and what part we don't approve of. You know, say you had a, a relative who baptized their children in a Roman Catholic church. Is there any sense in which you could say congratulations that something good has happened? Yeah, I think there's some sense. A valid baptism has taken place. But I wouldn't go do that without some explanation at some point to say, but you know, <laughs> all the rest of this stuff we don't like. And so uh, just just think about that in terms of, you know, what if a, a close relative was an ordained to be a minister of, say, a Reformed Presbyterian church or something like that, uh, or a close friend, and he, he's recently ordained and he invites you to a party to celebrate his recent ordination. Could you go? He's not, you know, he's setting up to be a PCA minister or an OPC minister. Well, I think it's possible, but you want to be pretty careful about the message that you're sending to the guy. There is The kernel of his ordination is valid, so I suppose there's something to, to celebrate. But we'd never go listen to him preach. We'd never want the sacraments administered. Uh, you know, So there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't like about what he's doing. I think it's important that that testimony is made to him, again, tenderly in love, at the right time, in the right place. <clears throat> so, uh, just something to think about uh, so that you make these distinctions and when you explain to people what the problem is, you say, here's the part I think is fine, here's the part I think that's not fine. And that's just being clear. And I don't see any problem if you do it in the right spirit with being clear. I actually think it's the most loving thing to do and the most understandable way. Even if they don't agree with you, at least they can understand it if we're clear. Uh, and they might think it's uh, dumb or whatever, but at least it's not unreasonable. It's understandable. So that's all I wanted to say on uh, the valid and lawful distinction. Uh, and uh, last of all... Um, I'm just trying to move through this fairly quickly. Uh, next thing we should consider when we're talking about wedding receptions is if significant amounts of idolatry will be present at the wedding reception or significant, just doesn't just apply to wedding receptions, just applies to any public meeting. If really significant amounts of idolatry are there, uh, uh, I think we should inquire before going as to whether there will be, you know, lots of prayers by ordained ministers who are unfaithful at these public meetings, 
whether there'll be hymn singing with instruments uh, amongst the Reformed weddings, uh, certainly ones that I've been involved with. They can get going on the hymn singing. You could be into it for a half an hour or singing choruses or stuff. This, these type of things happen. Or any other religious ceremonies at these events. We should be asking for the program before we decide what we're going to do in regard to reception. Uh, let's take a second here to read uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, 14 through 18. It says, Be not uh, unequally together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, what I would like to do here, uh, again, remember the point that we're talking about, is talking about participating at these receptions, idolatry, uh, various things that go on. I'll just gonna, I'm just going to read. It's a, it's a little bit longer, but I'll just read what Calvin has, John Calvin has to say about this, because I think it's a very interesting section. Uh, and he's talking about the words "be be not un, unequally yoked." He says, as if regaining his authority, he Paul and now reproves them more freely, because they associated with unbelievers as partakers with them in outward idolatry. For he has exhorted them to show themselves docile to him as to a father. He now, in accordance with the rights that belong to him, reproves the fault into which they had fallen. Now, we mentioned in the former epistle what this fault was, for as they imagined that there was nothing that was unlawful for them in outward things, they defiled themselves with wicked superstitions without any reserve. For in frequenting the banquets of unbelievers, they participated along with them in profane and impure rites, while they sinned grievously. They nevertheless thought themselves innocent. On this account, Paul inveighs here against outward idolatry and exhorts Christians to stand aloof from it and have no connection with it. He begins, however, with a general statement with the view of coming down from that to a particular instance. For to be yoked with unbelievers means nothing less than to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, Ephesians 5.11 and to hold out the hand to them in token of agreement. Many are of the opinion that he speaks of marriage, but the context clearly shows that they are mistaken. The word that Paul uh, makes use of means to be connected together in drawing the same yoke. It is a metaphor taken from oxen or horses which require to walk at the same pace and to act together in the same work. 
when fastened under one yoke. Okay, so uh, one more, uh, one more uh, idea. He says, hence too, or I'll or maybe go up a little bit. Uh, in short, it comes to this: that unless they would have everything thrown into confusion, they must refrain from the pollutions of the wicked. Hence, too, we infer that even those that do not in their hearts approve of superstitions are nevertheless polluted by dissimulation if they do not openly and genuinely or ingeniously stand aloof from them. So he's saying in situations where there's open idolatry at banquetings, at feasts, and, you know, not just a tiny little bit of it that's easy to get out of, but open idolatry is going along, we ought to stand aloof from it. We ought to stand away from it. And so I think it's a very uh, legitimate question uh, to ask ourselves before we go to a wedding reception, what exactly is going to be going on here? Uh, you'll find also, and I won't read this just for the sake of time, but I'll just note it to you, that uh, William Gouge, one of the only guys that I've seen so far, uh, on page 206 of his Domestical Duties, he actually talks directly about receptions. He doesn't call it a wedding reception. He calls it of civil celebration of marriage. And he, he says, obviously, the church side is the ecclesiastical celebration of marriage, the wedding reception is the civil celebration of the marriage. And he goes down and he says, here's what's good about it, here's what's bad about it. And so I just mentioned that to you. Uh, uh, I'll just read one tiny section here. It's just like one sentence. <clears throat> he says here, By the way, let good heed be taken, that the things which may be lawfully used be not unlawfully abused, as commonly marriage festivities, and that especially in feastings are. And he goes on to point out that these marriage festivities and receptions, uh, they're kind of unbridled. I, I don't know how many you've been in uh, personally, but uh, depending on who's running them and what's going on, they can get quite out of hand. Uh, and they can become, uh, you know, basically um, a huge unruly party where lots of trouble happens. Uh, they can also be used properly. And all I'm trying to point out here is before we get ourselves into that situation, uh, let's ask some, you know, respectable questions to people, find out what the program looks like. And remember that we have duties in regard to the Second Commandment. We have duties that says, uh, it, what are the duties required in the Second Commandment? We're required uh, to disapprove, to detest, and to oppose all false worship according to our, each one's place and calling, removing it in all monuments of idolatry. So that's our duty. Uh, on the sins forbidden in the second commandment, is anyone approving any religious worship not instituted by God? Okay, so that doesn't just apply to public worship services. That doesn't just apply to wedding receptions either. That, replies, uh, that, that applies everywhere. A, approving of false religious worship is a violation of the second commandment. We have to be careful in these situations. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> last but not least, I would like to discuss with you the relation of 
our duties of familiar fellowship with our attendants at wedding receptions? Um, how does the Bible teach us to treat people that have been positively excommunicated? So people that were members of our church who were positively excommunicated out of our church. Uh, I'd like to talk about the idea of a negative excommunication. Now, this is something that Rutherford brings up, and I think it's a very valid idea that um, professing Christians, uh, just because they haven't been in our church, uh, well, it's, it's safe to say, could they become, with their present belief system, members of our church right now? No. Or could they come to our communion table? No. So the, are they in an X, which means out, communicate status? Sure they are. Not to the same degree, though, as somebody who's been positively excommunicated. But we have to take into account, how do we treat these people? And there are even cases where those who are outside of our church they really would have even more light, possibly, and are more culpable for being outside of our church than somebody, let's say you had a fairly brand new convert in our church. They started to sin obstinately and were excommunicated, but they're just, they hardly knew anything yet. But they just got obstinate and were positively excommunicated. Compare that to somebody who's been a minister for 35 years, who studied covenanter theology inside and out. Who's more culpable before God for not being in the church? I'll say the guy who has more light. So it's just not automatic that the positively excommunicated people are way worse off. We have to judge based on a number of things. And so I just point that out that uh, the people outside of the covenanter church, according to the faithful attainments, I would say that they are, in a sense... They're negatively excommunicated. Okay? All that means is, at the very least, they can't come to our communion table even if they want to. Nor could they be members even if they want to in their present professed belief system. So, it, it meets the definition. Finally, how do we treat people who are not professing to be believers? So, you see the three different steps. Those who are called brothers, who are not faithful, positively excommunicated, those who are called brothers, who are negatively excommunicated, and just the general heathen population out there. Does the Bible tell us to treat them all the same? And the answer is no. Now, this is a big subject, and there's no way in the world that we're going to have time to go through the subject. I'd like to do a whole Bible study uh, on this uh, on this idea so that we can just look at our duties. Once we do the familiar fellowship ideas, then you can go back and ask the question and say, well, what do I do at a wedding reception? Well, at a, at a wedding reception, you're going to find uh, all three of those groups, likely, sooner or later, if you go to many wedding receptions. You're going to find positively excommunicated people possibly there. You're going to find negatively, and you're going to find general unbelievers. The reason I want to point it out is just so that we do the best we can. There's no perfect answer to this one because it's such a mixed-up meeting with all sorts of different people. I would say this, though, that in certain contexts, uh, if I can just explain a context of my own, this will be good on tape. Uh, 
this might be the editing part that we're looking for, uh, that uh, in, in my uh, family situation, it's possible that I could go in a, in a wedding situation if I went to a reception, that there could be uh, three or four Reformed pastors and maybe even up to eight ruling elders at a particular get-together. And, you know, from all different walks of the Reformed churches. And some of these guys are pretty hostile to what we believe. And so one of the questions I would have to ask is, you know, if I go there, will there be peace? You know, or is it just going to create a scene which we don't want to create in a public situation? And so we can look at those kind of principles too. We're just, you know, we're not trying to ruin somebody's wedding reception. We're trying to be wise about these things. And so that side of it applies also just our duties. What do, how do we treat these people who are in these different categories? And I'd like to talk about that again. I stress that these things are not going to be strictly legislated by the elders of this church. Not unless we're talking about gross extremes being ignored. These are judgment calls. You're going to have to decide how far to go in a particular case with people. Uh, how far can you go in a wedding reception situation? Now, I could be looking over your shoulder and asking a bunch of questions about it. What I was, you know, and the only reason I ever brought this up in the first place is I'm just saying, let's think past the idea that our duty's done as soon as the wedding ceremony is over. Now we've got a free-for-all. No, we've, got, we've still got some thinking to do as to what we involve ourselves with in these public meetings. Let's just ask some questions. Let's be careful to keep our testimony consistent. And, uh, and let's be very respectable about the way we make our testimony. So, I think that's basically as far as I want to go for tonight. Um, fire away and ask questions. Did I? Okay, good. So, I think what I'll do is, uh, for now, just so that you would feel maybe more free to ask questions, I think I'll just turn this off. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, 
commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.